Well, I would say the first thing that I find people that, that they just aren't doing is that they're not protecting their SaaS infrastructures. So if they've got a 365, a Google Workspace, a Salesforce, they're counting on that company to protect data. And that's the biggest thing, I think, is that they're just not protecting it at all. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. Today, I have with me W. Curtis Preston, Chief Technical Evangelist at Druva. Well, Curtis, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Anytime. So could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? So as of last month, I have had 30 years experience in the backup and data protection industry. Started at a bank, what at that time was the second largest credit card company, MBNA, back in 1993, and basically specialized in that backups ever since. What is your current role? Chief Technical Evangelist, which basically, you know, at Druva, which basically means I do this, right? I talk a lot. I have my own podcast and do a lot of writing as well. What's your podcast? My main podcast is the Restore It All podcast. It's on BackupCentral.com. And I also have Druva's No Hardware Required podcast. Excellent. I always love to talk to another podcaster. You have perhaps the most unique moniker. I have come across, and that's Mr. Backup. So mm -hmm. tell us about the origins of Mr. Backup and why today you are still Mr. Backup. I wish I could give you an origin story. I really wish I could. I honestly don't remember when it started happening, but it did sort of stick right around the time I was writing my first book on backups. So I figured, you know, roll with the punches, right? Figured I might as well take advantage of that and then continue to use it professionally. So I don't have a good backup story for it, a backup story for Mr. Backup Term. All right. Well, perhaps then you could tell us a little bit about Druva. Yeah. So Druva is the leading provider of SaaS-based data protection systems, right? So the idea there is, uh, which when I started a little over five years ago, that was a, an odd term. People didn't understand, well, what do you mean? Well, it's like, well, you know what Microsoft 365 is, Salesforce is, you know what SaaS is? Well, we're that, but for backup and recovery and disaster recovery and data resilience. Basically, you don't need to install anything or you don't need to manage a backup server to use our service. You may need to install an agent. You may need to, in the case of VMware, you put an OVA in. In the case of 365, you authenticate us to your 365 environment, but then you just run your backup. So all the infrastructure that is needed for the purposes of backup and recovery, we manage all of that, including the security of it, which is becoming possibly the most important part of the whole picture. Are your clients and customers Fortune 100 companies? Are they people like me with a podcast network? Are they solo entrepreneurs, all of the above, none of the above, or some mix? It's a mix. We typically have customers that have at least like 25 seats and moving on. So we don't typically go down to the level of mom and pop, if you will. But we do have many Fortune 100 customers. I don't have an exact number, but I know it's definitely in the double digits. So in the data security world, it seems to me that a large portion of companies who are in that world really are still involved in education and educating their clients, customers 
on don't open dodgy emails, use two right. factor authentication, et cetera. In the backup world, are you still in that sort of educational phase or do people after 30 years finally understand the need for a robust backup with robust status security? It's funny that you pose it that way because I would argue that in some sense, the general knowledge of people 30 years ago regarding backup and recovery was better than it is today. There's a couple of reasons. One is that so many of the devices that you and I know, use on a day-to-day -day basis, they're so dang reliable, right? No one's ever had a disk drive fail in their iPhone. I'm sure it's happened, but not like back in the day, everything was running on a disk drive, you know, actual physical spinning disk, right? And those things failed all the time. And so we also didn't have RAID when I first started. Today, I think the average user is so used to equipment that just works, they don't really think as much about backup and recovery, I think, as we did back in the day. And then the other reason that this is the case is that the advent of the cloud. So, so many people think that when they put their stuff up in the cloud, well, it's magic, the cloud's magic, and it includes backup. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But the biggest one where people seem to be surprised by is things like Microsoft 365. It's like you've put all of your company's really important data, not well, all of it, but much of your company's really important data in this email and file service. And no one is stopping to ask whether or not backup is included as part of that service because it's not. In many ways, I'm fighting that problem. I continue to fight it to this day, even though you'd think that we're so much more technologically advanced than they, we were 30 years ago. It seems harder. When you sit down with a customer, a potential customer, are you across the table from a CISO, a CTO, general counsel, CEO, or other senior executive, or are you talking to the board about these issues? Or once again, perhaps all of the above? Yeah, it's all of the above. It really just depends on the company, the size of the company. The CISO may get involved in the conversation. Generally, we're talking to a director of IT or a CIO. The CISO gets involved as part of the conversation, especially if the reason that they're talking to us is that they had an incident, perhaps a ransomware incident with another product, and they weren't successful at recovering. So a CISO may get involved at that point, or perhaps someone who works for the CISO, right? Someone representing the security interests of the company. We think that all of those interests should be in there, right? There should be business interests. There should be security interests, as well as technical and storage and network interests, all of those interests should be reflected in the implementation of such an important system as a data protection system. Why should a company have fire drills when it comes to potential ransomware attacks? Well, it's really the same reason why they do actual fire drills, right? So that you have muscle memory. I've been working from home for so long that I, I haven't been in office buildings too much when fire drills have happened, but I've been in hotels and they go off at random hours. And you just get used to, when you hear that sound, you know what to do. You go to the nearest exit and so on, right? You do that muscle memory and they do it so that their staff knows what to do and how do random half-dressed hotel people, how do they behave, right? So they know how to deal with that. The same is true with ransomware attacks that by doing these fire drills, you just get used to the kinds of questions and you get a red team and a blue team and they, you know, they fight against each other. You just get used to the kinds of questions that you need to ask. 
It helps you to develop your ransomware playbook, your incident response playbook. And then it helps you to test to see whether or not that playbook is any good before you actually have to test it out in battle. When I read that on your website, the first image that popped in my mind was junior high school, literally fire drills or elementary school or even high school. Yep. Yep. I have a friend, an Englishman who plays in the GDPR space, and he does not use the term fire drills. He uses practices. I think the concept's the same, but I will have to say the term fire drill for me as an American brings up everything you describe and the locations you described, whether it be junior high school or whether it be an hotel, you're absolutely right. right. I'm in this place. What do I need to do? It's cold outside. Do I need to put a jacket over my pajamas? Literally. Should I take my computer down the stairs? All of those things. And I really appreciated that language you used because it brought up really all of the things that we would think about in a fire drill. And hopefully you guys can help impart to your customers if a ransomware attack occurs. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I consider myself an Anglophile and I love the fact that we're separated by a common language between our, you know, here and our friends on the other side of the pond. Uh, And I wasn't familiar with that particular difference, but it wouldn't surprise me if they have a different term, but I'm sure they have the same concept. The idea is, is we're just going to do it when we don't have to do it so that when we have to do it, we know what we need to do. We develop muscle memory. So what are sort of the three of the most common elements you see that companies need to modernize or upgrade around their data protection program? Well, I would say the first thing that I find people that that they just aren't doing is that they're not protecting their SaaS infrastructures. So if they've got a 365, a Google Workspace, a Salesforce, they're counting on that company to protect data. And that's the biggest thing, I think, is that they're just not protecting it at all. The second is there's actually a huge list from just in terms of the intricacies, the difficulties, and the inefficiencies of a typical on-premises backup infrastructure. That it's not three things, it's 10, 15, 20 things of like the fact that it's a capital purchase that you have to decide now what you need for the next three years. Generally, you're overbuilding it. You have to over-engineer it both for growth and for the fact that backup is a it's really bad during the night. It doesn't do much during the day. And maybe you need more during a restore. You have to design this ultimate beautiful system for the next three years, which generally means you buy something much bigger than what you need today. And you're paying for it with today's dollars. All of those inefficiencies just tie up into the way that you can modernize that is to use a SaaS based system where you're paying only for what you're actually using. Again, just like 365 and Salesforce, you pay for the number of seats that you use. In our case, you either pay for seats, depending on what you're backing up, or the number of gigabytes that we store on your behalf. And then the final one would be not modernizing the security of your backup system because the ransomware attackers are directly targeting backup systems for a couple of reasons. One is that they want to take it out of the game. They want to attack you with ransomware. They want to take it out of the game. They can take out your star player. Then they're probably going to beat you to use a a sports analogy here. The other is that depending on how your backup system is configured, it can actually be a gold mine for intellectual property that they could steal. And if they can exfiltrate that data, again, you'd be much more likely to pay the ransom. So it all starts, all goes back to modernizing the security infrastructure of the backup system. 
if your backup infrastructure is still people logging in as root and logging in as administrator, if you're not using the concept of least privilege everywhere you can, if you're not using MFA, you know, you talked about that already. If you're not using that in your backup system, if you're not using triggers and alerts to alert to something going on, something weird going on in your backup system, all of these things need to be changed. And yes, it is possible to do most, if not all of that with a typical on-premises backup system, or you can use a SaaS-based system and all of that will just come included as part of it. Do you advocate limiting the number of users or those who can access a backup system to a smaller than and full employee base? So there's two groups here, right? One would be an administrator, a set of administrators. And yes, that would be limited to a very small number of people. But as far as users, depending on your backup system, you can configure it for users to be able to restore their own data. So the restore files on your laptop, restore files in uh, Microsoft 365. And that, again, depending on your company and how you feel about things, it's okay to allow users to restore their own data. I don't have any problem with that. The only reason why people do that is basically they don't trust their own users. Right? So they turn them off. I don't see a cybersecurity issue with that. But yes, the administrators, you should have this concept of role-based administration where you have some person who, to go back to the old days, one person just swaps tapes, one person just runs backups, another person configures backups, another person does restores. Well, today, all those jobs could potentially be done by one person, but if they are being done by multiple people, you create a role for that person. All, if what they're doing is they're running backups, they should have the ability to run backups, and that is it. If they have the ability to configure backups, again, the bigger the company, the easier it is to spread things out like this. But the point is, if you've got half a dozen people that are doing backups, divvy up the roles and responsibilities and give each of them a part of those responsibilities. And the reason you do that is to limit the blast radius. That's what the concept of least privilege is about. So if the person whose job it is to run backups, if their account is compromised, the only thing someone's going to get the ability to do is to run more backups, which is fine. That's what that idea of list privilege is. I had a colleague who said that after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that he felt American businesses were now a part of a permanent non-kinetic warfare, specifically around attempts at cyber breaches and cyber attacks. And that now with the apparent upcoming conflict we're going to have with China, we may be under the same attack. Not, I don't mean to suggest military, but for businesses. Are you seeing more of that or are you, you and your colleagues in your discipline having those discussions now? Yeah, absolutely. Especially Russia, not so much with China yet, but definitely with Russia state-sponsored attacks. Many of these cyber criminals are state-sponsored companies, essentially. They're huge companies, by the way, with HR departments and very well-funded, well-organized companies that are doing this. And if they're not state-sponsored, they're state-sanctioned, meaning that the state just leaves them alone. And yes, we are seeing an increase in that sense. And there's a worry that it could be part of an actual state response, right? So in terms of, obviously, Russia's not happy that we're meddling, if you will, in the, in the Ukraine war. And so they could retaliate and have been retaliating against U.S. companies. 
So yeah, I, I do see that. And those that specialize in the actual cyber warfare part more than me, they're definitely saying that, which is why, again, you just have to beef up your defenses, right? You just have to be able to respond to a ransomware attack from anywhere. I do think you have to assume breach, right? You do have to assume that at some point, somebody's going to click on an email that they shouldn't have, and they're going to infect their laptop with ransomware. Then they're going to log into your VPN. The question is now what? Will you notice that something in your network is, is talking to weird domain names that they shouldn't be? Will you notice that they're trying to communicate to other laptops? Why is Curtis's laptop trying to talk to Tom's laptop, right? That's never happened before. Why is it trying to happen now, right? So you should assume breach and then set up your network so that you can effectively respond to an attack like that. For you or other colleagues at Druva having these kinds of discussions with boards of directors to help them understand the overall risk management strategy they may need to follow and how it will affect their companies long-term? The short answer would be yes. We are continually having these conversations. Also, we're doing a couple of ransomware recoveries a week now. And so we've actually beefed up and are in the process of building out an actual practice that is basically designed to, you know, it's interesting as a SaaS company, we haven't really needed a lot of professional services throughout the years because the product just works. You just log in. And the only time where somebody might need professional services is when maybe during some giant migration or something. But what this is about, this is helping companies prepare for these attacks because the only way to be successful at responding to a ransomware attack is to be prepared for it, right? We talked about fire drills. You need a playbook to go off. You need people that have done this before. So you need cyber response teams and incident response teams that you create those relationships before. A great way to do that is to use a cyber insurance company. They will tell you who to use. And you have all those people in your corner and a playbook ready to be used the more of that you do up front, the more you will be prepared for an attack. Do you see the need, or I'll actually uh, maybe ask you to look down the road a little bit to 2030, will the need for cyber resilience and some of the other protection topics you've touched on increase as we near the end of this decade? You know, that's a great question. I think going back to the beginning, when you asked me, are people, do they understand backup better more? I think that Many people, including myself, understand cyber attacks more than they did before, and that many people got lazy in terms of infrastructure design, and as a result, they're a lot more attackable. In fact, if you look at anything that analyzes most of the breaches, it's like some number, like 90% of them could have been stopped by just doing the things that you were supposed to do, updating your patches, using MFA changing your passwords, having strong password management. By the way, I do think by 2030, the passwords will be a thing of the past. I think that we will just live in a world, it's sort of like COVID. COVID caused us to change some things of the way we did things. We'll have to live in a world of constant cyber attack. And so I think that maybe it will get better, but not from the attack side, but hopefully from the defense side. I think you're absolutely spot on that People are more aware of cyber attacks. I hope 
what they will garner from this podcast and perhaps your other work as the chief technical evangelist is, it's not simply multi-factor authentication. It's not simply good password management. It's also having a robust backup plan in place with sufficient security protocols and that when you are attacked, not if, but when you are attacked, they can't take your star player out. And if it all does go down, you have a way to at least build back. Yeah, exactly. That's why, you know, we believe strongly in having a solid backup system and having it completely air-gapped from your, the primary network that you're protecting. And, and the easiest way to do that is to use a SaaS provider like Druva, where everything is stored. It's behind a different authentication and authorization system. It's in a different technology. It's using object storage instead of the file storage you're using in most of your servers. We separate the data and the metadata for security reasons. And it's also constantly being monitored for security reasons, right? So that basically when you get a cyber attack, the backup and DR system that we built will be immediately available for you. Now, there's a lot of work you'll have to do to get ready to do the actual restore part. I'm actually working on a book right now about that, about the response that you have to do. There's a lot you have to do to get to that point to do the restore. What our job will be is once you've actually prepared your environment to do a restore, you can literally, literally, by the way, because I'm not a millennial and I actually know what that word means, <laughs> literally push one button and the entire restore will be fully automated. Basically, that's our role in life. Unfortunately, Curtis, we're near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you, if our listeners wanted more information on Druva on yourself or any of the topics we've touched on, what would be the best place or places for them to go? So druva.com would be the easiest for Druva information. And for me, just go to backupcentral.com. You'll find my podcast there as well. Can we link to your podcast in the show notes? Absolutely. All right. We will do so. Well, Curtis, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I hope we can continue this conversation. Absolutely. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review. 